Well, to get right into the text here from Romans chapter 5, just in verse 6 this morning, the Apostle Paul begins verse 6 by compelling us to pay attention to what he has just said. He compels us to pay attention to what he's just said, and we know that very practically because he starts off verse 6 by the word for. He's making an argument here based off of something that, that has gone before what he is now telling us to do, that the certainty, and he's talked about this before, the certainty and finality of our salvation is exclusively in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that we should feel secure in our salvation. Christian, you should always feel secure in your salvation, never doubting it. But you shouldn't just feel secure, but you should have joy in the midst of that security. You know, it's not just like putting on a seatbelt. I had a dream last night that, that my entire family, sorry, Brooke, that my entire family got caught in a car wreck and we were underwater, right? But then we emerged from that and then we put on seatbelts again, just walked around with seatbelts. Weirdest dream of my life. <laughs> That's not just what salvation gives us, not just that security that we feel, oh, okay, we can do this, but we have joy in our salvation because of the certainty by which it was given to us. Because, Paul says, because of the peace that we now have, because we were reconciled to God. Us as sinners now reconciled to God, that should not only help us feel secure, but now to walk with courage, strength, determination, or what the Bible calls Joy. The whole object of verse 6 is to validate this very claim. All of the buildup of Romans 1 through 5, verse 5, can be grounded in the certainty of the validation of what verse 6 then says. So today, I want you to walk away from this verse being able to stare into the depths of this passage and know not only is this claim along the lines of absolute truth above it, but to better know through it the very love of God that brought it to you. I don't want you to just understand conceptually the knowledge of I am secure in Christ, but I want you to walk away with the reality that it is first because of the love that you can now walk in joy. What you're looking at in verse 6 is Paul giving an, a, a simple and clear exposition of God's love. You think, tell me what God's love is like. Tell me what the love of God means. Tell me what it means to be loved by God here in just a simple form, an exposition by Paul in one simple sentence. Now, you might be tempted to look at this text. You might be tempted to look at this text and move quickly on to verse 7. You might look at this and go, yes, I know, or even be tempted to think this is boring, or are we really going to be spending anywhere between 30 and 50 minutes on just an exposition of this? I saw some eyes go, like, that was an increase of like 40%. No. Can we really stare at this? Yes. Paul here, like any good teacher, reminds us of the truth that determines our entire life. And we need, you and I need to not only hear this truth and understand this truth, but you and I very simply need to be reminded regularly of this truth. I planned to preach this text a couple of months ago because uh, Brooke and I were traveling all this last week. We were gone for seven days in a row. Nothing makes your own bed feel great after spending time in a cheap hotel. But I knew this was coming up, and it just seemed to hit me greatly last night as we were driving back from the Oklahoma City area and be reminded that you and I, just 
went through the Christian calendar of being reminded that Christ died for sinners, and then he rose from the grave. And how many of us in the following six to seven days forgot that glorious truth? And in many ways, Paul is reminding us after expositing the Bible to us here in this one little verse of what it means to be loved by God. We are forgetful people. We forget things all the time. I forget things all the time. You and I might have little tags on our billfolds or our phones or purses that if it is somewhere lost, we can look it up on something else that we haven't lost and be able to find it. I've left my laptop places. I've left my phone places. I've lost Brooks things left and right. We are forgetful people. We need to be reminded all the time of regular things. But Christian, you need to mostly be reminded of God's love. What does that mean? While I was in college, there was a guy who discipled me heavily for a couple of years in the latter part of my college experience. And he he was incredibly important to me in my own walk, and I was constantly amazed at his steady and endless attempt to memorize Scripture. This guy at that time probably was around 60, 65. He was a former navigator. Some of you have probably had some experience with the navigators, the, the Christian ministry, where a lot of the navigator's work is by meditating on in such a way that you memorize Scripture regularly in your own life. And this was a man in the latter part of his years, and I know him today, and he's still trying to memorize Scripture today. Uh, He says that he wasn't very good at it, and so I found great company with him whenever I'd forget, and we'd meet, and we'd have these flashcards, but he would keep going. He would always carry around flashcards. He would always carry around the flashcards that he was learning this week, the flashcard that he learned last week and two weeks prior, but there was always one that no matter where he was on memorizing Scripture, he always kept one with him. The first note card that he always carried, no matter where he was, was John 3.16, because he said he always needed to be remembered of what the love of God was like. I can remember him saying that there was nothing childlike or cheesy or too elementary about this verse. And in reality, the longer he lived, the more impactful this verse was. He would say, it's what shakes the walls of the soul and breaks up the foundation of depravity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Think about that. Shaking the walls of the soul and breaking up the foundation of depravity that God gave his son. And with that, it's like Paul nearly exegetes that truth out here in our verse this morning. In Romans, Paul already wrote just chapter, just two chapters before in chapter three, saying that there is nothing new from Paul's pen, but here he says it again, making it simple. Don't miss it, like someone giving quick advice right before dropping off a friend or a kid to school. You get that last moment advice, have fun, turn in your homework, Don't push people on the playground. That last little moment of if you could give yourself a last little boost of advice, Christian, what would you have said to you? Why does Paul repeat himself? Well, not only because he wants to remind us, but also I see him having a different object in mind. In chapter 3, his point is chapter 3 of Romans. His point was that there is no method or way of justification apart from this truth. But here, he's concerned not just with the method of salvation, but also the very love that salvation comes from, the very source that salvation roots itself in, which is love. It looks like Paul cannot help himself but to burst out with the love of God, the realization of God's love as the catalyst of joy. So how are we to remember the love of God? How can you walk away joyful? I am not normally a joyful soul. 
In fact, the most common thing that people ask me are, what's wrong? Just because of this face that is just living a life of pure joy, you know? (laughs) So how can we walk away with joy? We have to be rooted in the reality and understanding of God's love. So I want to give you three things. If you're using an outline this morning, it has three different categories. If you're not filling the blank, take notes underneath them. But I first want you to remember God's love because of his delivery. If you remember God's love and relish in his truth, then the response that Paul says is that you will have a joy of confidence or that you will have a a life of confident joy. So remember God's love because first of his delivery. The first thing you'll notice when you look at this verse, which shows God's love, is that his love is from his deliverance. His love is from deliverance. It's not a mere emotional thing that happens in your life, but it is from his deliverance. So we should remember God's love by his provision. This is not something that is the father versus the son. This is not something that is wrath versus love. Uh, but rather it is love that is from His glory. I want you to look at the first phrase. It says, for while we were still weak, the passage says, while we were still weak. God's love is being extended to us. We receive God's love, and it's not because of anything that you and I have done. We don't receive God's love because I'm special, or I've done this, or I've said that, or I've been in this place at this time. We don't receive God's love that way. We receive God's love because He gives it. It's actually in spite of everything that we've done, regardless of who you are, how great of things you've done. God's grace is not rewarded to you because of that. The the Scriptures say that while we were still weak, His love is being delivered to us. Weak is a, is a great word, I think, for all of us to, to conceptually understand and meditate on because you might immediately visualize something physical. When you think of weak, you, you imagine something physical. Some of you are getting, you would say, weaker as you get older. Some of you might work out. So for those of you who are playing football, two-a-days are like, what, two and a half months away? And you're thinking, oh man, nothing shows me how weak I am than when I have to face other people with strength. Now, some versions of your Bible may have helpless or powerless. Uh, Some have weak, some have uh, powerless, some have helpless. We all know what it's like to be physically weaker than someone else or something else. Uh, When I was in high school, I played fullback um, because I wasn't fast enough to play running back and I wasn't big enough to play in the line. So I played fullback because they didn't really know what to do with me. But every now and then, I would have to go out on the edge of the line and face defensive ends. And defensive ends, by pedigree, are larger than me and stronger than me and better than me. And there was one time where I played against Ponca City. It felt like me versus Ponca City. And that defensive end later went on to play at Oklahoma State. I have no idea who he was, nor did he care who I was for every time he ran over me. And you find out at that point when you are completely worthless, when you are faced against something that is stronger than you. But weakness here in this passage, it isn't just something physical. It's actually talking about your spiritual nature. You are spiritually weak. I've heard it multiple places. But I first heard it from R.C. Sproul's preaching. The late R.C. Sproul, he died in uh, late 2017. He was a a Presbyterian preacher later in Florida. And we often think, this is what he says, we often think of our lives outside of God's love as one who is drowning in water. He says, we often think of our lives as someone who is drowning in water, trying desperately to survive. 
If only we had a little help, then we could really thrive in our lives. But in truth, what Sproul says is, you and I in our spiritual lives are not drowning. You know, we are not the people on the Titanic who are just hoping for a life jacket or for a rowboat, but we are dead in our spiritual life. We are not just paddling for safety, but we are at the bottom of the sea, is what Sproul says. We are at the bottom of the sea, helpless, hopeless, or what this passage says, weak, still weak. And it's at this point that Paul later picks up in the church to Ephesus when he writes in Ephesians chapter 2, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, so that language there, dead in our spiritual life, made us there, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Friends, understanding that while we are still weak, hopefully sets you up to understand a little bit more of God's love. How do you conceptually understand God's love? First, you got to know that you're weak. Paul is saying that the Christian life has true hope and peace because while we were still weak, it's Christ who died for us. God has provided his love. He's even given his love to us as helpless and hopeless people. This is truly an amazing gift that comes to us. And still, within me saying that we should remember God's love because of his provision, our scripture says that not only while we were still weak did Christ die for us, but he also, secondly there, you have another phrase in your passage. It says not just while we were still weak, but also it says at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not just you being weak, but in accordance to his own provisional time did he extend his love to you. Look at that next phrase. Meditate on that at the right time. This phrase, this short phrase, shows that Christ's death wasn't a metaphor, but that it actually happened in space and time. Christ's death, what you and I celebrated or meditated on eight or nine days ago, it wasn't just something that we conceptually can think of, but that it actually happened. And not only did it happen, but it, but it wasn't by an accident. It's not just that things kind of got out of control in the empire of Rome and Man, that really just kind of happened, and, uh, you know, maybe we'll form a religion around it. But no, this was no accident. It was at the right time that God delivered His Son for the rescue of His people. But not only does it not show that it wasn't an accident, it doesn't just show that it, was, that it actually happened, but not only was it on purpose, not only was this action of Christ being crucified for His people Not only was it on purpose, but it was actually for a purpose. And not only did it have a purpose, but it was designed to actually be this way. The cross was no mystery. You know, there's a a song. We've sung it here twice or three times, but under the condition, Jeremy and I were looking at the song. It's a good song, but there's there's this one little phrase. There's one little phrase that that Jeremy and his posse uh, changed. So we can legally do that. We can take a couple of phrases because there was this one phrase. The song was good. There was this one phrase that showed that the angels were like looking down on the earth and they're seeing, you know, Christ going to the cross. It's like the angels are going, I hope this really works out. I hope this pans out according to God's provisional will. No, that is not. You and I better not sing like that. That Those angels had certainty. God's glory in sending His Son was a premeditated deliverance of God's people. There was no accident. It was for a purpose. It was designed. It was called for. Jesus Christ came in order to do a specific thing. 
He didn't just waltz into a room and find a couple of things that he can do and be like, I don't know what I'm here for, but I, I guess I'll fix this. No, he came, busting in the doors in order to do a specific thing. He came to die. And friends, you need to recognize that he didn't come to die in your weakness in the nick of time. He didn't come just in time. He came at the right time, according to God's word, at the, at the specific time that God chose to send his son, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul's theology of Jesus is not just focused on the outpouring of love of Christ's death on the cross, but also on the very circumstances that brought on the death by a cross. Jesus is not just focused on the outpouring love, uh, or Paul is not just focusing Jesus on the outpouring of love of Christ's death on the cross, but also on the very circumstances that brought on that death by a cross. Christ's death, which shows God providing eternal, reconciled love, took place according to the appointed time chosen by God. You think of that. And in, in, in many ways, we're, we're circling around this, hovering around this phrase, because I hope, it, I hope it portrays God as even bigger than you thought of Him before, even more in control of you thought of Him before, even in more power than you thought of Him before. If you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Galatians. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. It's just a couple of books over, so Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and the book of Galatians. Turn to the book of Galatians chapter 4 and go to verse 4. Galatians 4, verse 4. Same author here as wrote Romans. Same theology here. Verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, a lot of glory and even songs, if you will, can be formed out of the latter part of this work, but do not overlook. But when the fullness of time had come, that's when God sent his son. Turn to the left, to the book of John, John chapter 17. John chapter 17, later in the Gospel of John's account of the life of Christ. This is just before Jesus was betrayed, so you might think of this like, you know, a week and a half ago, if you were following along with the death of Christ and resurrection of Christ. John chapter 17, verse 1. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority of all flesh to give eternal life to all those you have given him. But don't overlook the phrase, Father, the hour has come. The submission there of God's control over everything. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to turn to it, but Acts chapter 2, verse 23, you might want to write it down. Acts chapter 2, it says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The the turn and the twist of that passage is talking about, it looks like you crucified and killed by the, he was killed by the hands of lawless men, but how was he killed by the lawless hands of men? Well, he was delivered up. How was he delivered up? He was delivered up according to a definite plan, and not just a plan, but one that, was, that had foreknowledge by God himself. 
Now, the reason Paul highlights this, not only in our passage, at the right time, not only does Paul and others talk about, uh, Luke and John talk about Jesus being delivered at the right time. The, the reason that Paul highlights this and why I'm reading or having you read these supporting passages is I want you to understand that God's love of his people is in their weakness was no accident. God's love for his people who are weak is of no accident. It's not a mystical occurrence. It's not by chance. It's not going to slip away because if it was determined by him, if it was held up by him, if it was according to him, then you and I can have the confidence and the joy in the Lord in our salvation because it won't slip away because we are still within his grip. We're still within his plan. We're still within his will for at the right time. The Son of God was sent by the Father to die so that God's beloved can be forever reconciled. I wonder, though, and here's a, here's a diagnostic question that only you can answer for yourself, and maybe if you came with other people, you can answer with them at lunch or later uh, tomorrow or later time if you want. I wonder, though, if you trust in God with the same confidence here that Paul here boasts of God. So Paul here is boasting of God. He's saying, God is doing amazing things, and he knows exactly what he is doing. I wonder if you place your trust in the same sense that Paul is boasting in God. Here, you see God in this text providing love by grace, and his love is by his appointment, appointing love not just by his power, for we're still weak, but appointing love, uh, but appointing his love according to his own perfect time. The joyful assurance that we can have in the eternal perfection of God's timing is that in the future, the wrath of God because of the death of Christ will never be poured out on his people because at the right time, it was God who sent Christ to die who were weak. Because now Paul, as Paul earlier says, he pours out his love or his spirit and his rest. Friend, if you're not trusting in God this morning with your life, if you're not trusting in the God who reveals himself to you through this scripture, that the call of this text is to stop doing what you're doing and trust in him. Trust, trust in the God who effectively saves sinners from themselves, from their weakness. If you're not, understand what this text calls you to do. He is calling you to turn from the life that you think you control. <laughs> but let's be honest, we do not because we are weak. He is calling you to turn from the life that you think you have control of and have Christ save you. He calls you to turn from the life that you think you hold on to. But let's be honest, you don't have any command of time. I mean, let's be real. We knew that all the clouds, or at least this was our house, we knew that all the clouds and the storms with tornadoes and swirling things were like far away from Enid. But we also knew that we weren't in control of those clouds. So what were Brooke and I doing right before we go to bed? She asked me, have you checked the weather? It's like, have you looked outside? It's fine. You know, but we recognize that we're not in control of anything there. Friends, he calls you to turn from the life that you think you hold on to. And if you're honest, you recognize you are not in control of your own life and to give it over to him. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Ask God to, to, rec to have yourself recognize who you really are and recognize that he will stand for you as Christ stood in the place of repentant sinners. Friends, remember the love of God. Why? Because of his deliverance over your weakness and in your timing. But secondly, not only remember God's love because of his deliverance, but secondly, remember God's love because of Christ's death. 
How can we reflect on and remember and hold on to and grasp the love of God? Well, we can if we remember Christ's own death. I want you to see the structure of this text here. This text has a particular structure to us that allows us to see the emphasis of it. Every text in the Scriptures has a structure to it. That structure allows us to see what is this text about. Well, we've all been in classes in high school. What is, you know, Pride and Prejudice about? I don't know. Pride? Prejudice? I don't know. And the answer is, that's not what it's about at all, right? Because you have understanding the the structure of the text, understand the structure of this text, insisting, Paul, Paul is insisting that the Christian life is one of hope because while we were still weak, at the right time, something was done for ungodly people. There is a participle clause and two prepositional phrases that add to the main thrust There's a participle clause and two prepositional phrases in this passage and and understanding where those chunks are. So I know that, friends, there will be a time, those of you who are in high school and college, where you will never have to think about participles and prepositional phrases again until you reach the book of Romans. But let's just just give it a little bit of time here, focus on this. There's a participle clause and two prepositional phrases that add to the main thrust, for Christ died. While we were still sinners, Christ died. At the right time, Christ died. For the ungodly, Christ died. In this text, in fact, these two words, Christ died, could be meditated on and marveled at for hours and hours. In the first point from our text, I told you that God's love was thought of by God, was conceived of by God, was predestined by God, and His love was and is of ultimate purpose because it gives us peace. It provides us hope. It provides triumph in the face of suffering and defeat. But that's not the most amazing part of this passage. The love of God was accomplished, carried out, and done by God in practice. Gaze again at the terms for while we were still weak. Gaze at the term at the right time. But then meditate for your whole life at the next phrase. Christ died. Even though God's followers are the recipient or the recipients of God's love. It is Jesus Christ who delivers it to them. It is by His death that we receive anything in our life. And the word Christ here is not to be overlooked. Don't just run past the noun to get to the action. Christ, we must remember who He is in full. In order to provide true love, Christ, the Messiah, was sent How can we see the love of God? Look to Christ, His fullness and His personhood. If you don't understand for whatever reason, maybe you're new here, maybe you're new to Christianity or this church, maybe you've been here for a little while and just don't believe what the rest of us at least profess to say that we believe, but the Christ here is the very Son of God, God Himself who is delivered over to His people. And if you're in doubt about the love of God, consider what happened at the right time. Don't believe this passage? Keep reading in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Flip back to Romans if you haven't found your spot. Romans chapter 5, where we just were. Romans 5, verse 8, where it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time. Nope, that's our passage. Verse 8. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Think that's just one man's word of what Paul is dreaming up. There's a, there's a modern theology today that tries to rebuke ethics in the Christian life. Uh, they use uh, 
the, the totality of Paul's language and saying, well, Paul was just talking to a specific person in a specific time. He was just talking to that general group. So we don't need to think about who should pastor a church according to their qualifications of a gender. We don't need to think about homosexuality in a certain way. We don't need to think about fidelity within a marriage because, after all, this is just Paul's theology. You know, let's look to the red letters of Jesus. Let's just look to, you know, things that we all can agree on here. In Isaiah chapter 53, that was read for us on our Good Friday service, it says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The the same things that Paul is saying can be found in the words of Isaiah. But within all that glory, don't forget his love. In Romans chapter 8 verse 32, it says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the all things here are clearly talking about things like faith and peace and access to grace with God, joy, being able to suffer with hope, being able to endure, to live to the end, being able to pursue righteous character, being able to hold on to true hope and knowing that when we die, we will be fully healed and fully in the presence of God. Why? Can we hold on to all of those things? Allow the structure of the text to point us to the emphasis of what it is saying, Christ died. But don't get too carried away yet with all those things. Keep in your mind the truth of the text. All those can come to you, things like true hope or faith or endurance. All those can come to you, how and why? Because Christ died. God's love comes to his people because of Christ's death. And Paul doesn't want you to keep on reading without being engulfed by God's love. It's why he repeats himself again and again, because you and I need to remember again and again that the thing that we need to come back to in our faith continually is the cross of Christ. God's love comes to his people because of his own son's death. But even though we can get carried away at the result, look deeply at the action. Christ the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We think of all of Him in His fullness, His personhood, His divinity. Look at the action now. He died. And notice what is written in God's Word, not just the life of Christ, not just the teachings of Christ, not just the miracles of Christ, but His very death. This shows and proves that God's love is toward His people. And this is how He has chosen to love you with your faith in Him. Not only was he sent, not only was he sent to live a perfect life, not only was he sent to teach you what we should have understood from the old scriptures, not only was he sent to perform miraculous things, but he was sent to die, and he knew it was happening. Friends, how do you think that expresses more deeply God's love for you? It's by Christ's death that he saves All other things about Christ are glorious, and they are. He is perfect. He is holy. But His death is how you and I can fully experience the love of God as He saves us from our sins. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 9 says that His suffering by death is how He tastes death for us. Or to put more plainly, if He didn't die, no man can be saved today. If He was just an example, then you and I are fools to do what we're doing today. But look one word further. Christ died for. Look at that word for. Christ died for. Who does it say there? Other passages in Scripture use different prepositions here, saying that Christ died in our place. Very accurate, helpful in visual form. Other parts of Romans say that Christ 
turns the, the punishment that we deserve away from us. This idea, it's called propitiation. So it's like a giant dam that is rerouting God's wrath away from us and onto himself and the person of his son. But here, Paul has us look at Christ's death, and then it has this word for there. This word for wonderfully shows the love of God at the center of this text here. The thrust of the passage is not on the recipient, meaning you and me, but on the provider. The emphasis here is on the provider of this passage, but the, but the glory that is taken away is from the recipient. Christ truly saves people by Him dying instead of them dying. This word for wonderfully shows the love of God at the center, the thrust of this passage being on the provider. Christ is revealed in the fullness of time. He's the very image of the invisible God, and it's staggering that He'd even humble Himself by coming to our world the Son willingly obeying the Father, being born of a word virgin, coming and growing up in infancy, worked as a carpenter. You think of the reality of that? This man who created everything is now working as a carpenter. You can imagine going to someone like him and saying, hey, can you build me a statue? And he's like, have you seen the Himalayas? Yes, I can. He was perfect in everything that he did. He never sinned. He was wise in everything that he thought. He was all-knowing. He knew what people who were speaking against him were knowing and saying and thinking, and he was all-powerful. We can be reminded of the miracles that were around him, but the fullness of God's love is seen in Christ's death upon the cross. He himself is giving himself over to the death that is the fountain of love that knows no wind. Paul will go on to visualize this love more in the next couple of verses, but for our time today, we're reminded of something that we cannot remember too much. We can remember the love of God because of Christ's death. When you look to the cross of Calvary, what do you feel? Think about it. When you look to the cross of Calvary, what do you feel? When you, when you hear the anthem sung about Christ's death, what do you what do you have going on inside of you? When you meditate on the words of the truth that Christ died for the ungodly, what do you think? Friend, do you feel saved, redeemed, fought for? Do you feel hope in the end? Do you feel encouraged to go forward, bold because of what he's done, astonished? That you and your weakness were having this done for you, excited, realizing that finally a payment has been paid. But I hope out of all those things that you would rightly feel, I hope that when you meditate on the death of Christ, you feel one thing, love. His love. As men, we don't want to think about that. We want to think of you know, strength and courage or whatever, but love. But our sentence is not completed. At the right time, in our weakness, Christ died, but it's not done there. If, if Paul knows that we're forgetful and need to, be, need to have a good reminder of God's love, we need to remember God's love because of his mercy. Or thirdly, we, we need to remember God's love because of his desire. We can experience the love of God not because of anything other than God's desire for us or his mercy. That's what mercy looks like, his his impeding desire for you. Now, so far, for weak and helpless people, and at the right time, God died for people he saves. And here you see the mercy of God's love. Remember the character of the people for whom Christ died. It says in this passage, the ungodly. Paul says in the following verse that it wouldn't be too far stretched to die for a great person. 
It wouldn't even be too far of a stretch to die for a good person, not even a great person. But to die for an ungodly person, that's unmerciful, or that is merciful. Here, the text takes a truly personal turn where we're described in the most truthful sense. Earlier, the audience of the letter was described as weak or helpless. That's, that's well in kind. You know, us being described as weak, us being described as helpless, that's, that's okay. But here, how are we described? Ungodly, sinful. I was at a pastor's retreat in the last couple of days, and what are the pastors within our within our conference, in our denomination, and he gave a devotional one morning, and he said with bold acclamation, people do not need to be told that they're sinners. And I thought, you are a moron. If I'm not a sinner, then what do I care about whatever you're saying? If I'm not a sinner, Christ doesn't need to die for me. If I'm not a sinner, he needs to worship me. The father loved the son because the son was glorious. But here, friends, be reminded, for whom did Christ die? The ungodly. It's unbelievable. Not only were they described as sinners, they were described as dead because of their sins. They were also described as enemies of God, completely devoid of godliness, nowhere near godliness, we're not just weak, we're unable. Earlier I mentioned how, how I could go up against a giant tight end. Well, now the image of that, of that scripturally is that I'm not even to play on the field. I'm disqualified by even participating with others. There is no Rudy moment for me. I'm not allowed. Yet it is here where the Son of God intervenes into the life and regenerates what was once dead and made it fully alive. Romans chapter 9 verse 16 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy on the sinners. Christ died thankfully for the ungodly. Only Christ's death can save us, which is good news because our sin and sinfulness remind us of why we need to be saved. Can you remember the love of God if you consider who saved you and from what you are being saved from? You are being saved from wrath of God and from your sinfulness that deserves God's wrath. You are being saved from that. Friends, that's what the love of God looks like. Oftentimes, we may testify to what God has saved us from, selfishness, addictiveness, pride, or greed. The truth is we are saved from ungodliness. You all know the hymn, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died for me. Who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Friends, to conclude, our passage today reminds us of God's love. What does the love of God look like? The son's death at the right time in our weakness for our ungodliness. We are reminded here of the gospel, and in doing so, we get to enjoy what the gospel gives us, the wondrous mystery that says, while we were still weak, Christ died. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You and me, Christ died. May we never forget it. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are grateful and thankful that you recognize 
the need of us to be reminded of your goodness. And we thank you that you are patient and that you are kind and that you are generous towards us, but not only in reminding us of your love, but by giving us your love in full through the person and his death and his resurrection. God, we ask that wherever we are and wherever we go, we would remember you in your grace and mercy. Oh, Lord, may we never forget. Give us strength. We need it so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.